There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello and welcome to Daisy is Insatiable. I'm Daisy Buchanan, the author of Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls. Together we're going to be exploring love, lust, life, appetite, identity and everything that makes sex thrilling, fascinating and bewildering. My guest today is the behavioural expert Sharu Izadi. This episode is a little different because I wanted to explore some of the themes in the novel that go beyond sex. If you've read Insatiable, you'll know that Violet wrestles with all of her appetites, and when she's stressed and unhappy, she uses food to punish herself and as a way of numbing herself. I've been a disordered eater for most of my life, and Cheru's brilliant books about developing self-compassion as a grounding for healthy habits have changed me. I wanted to talk to Cheru about all of the challenges we face and why it is that so many of us struggle with self-love why we'll reach for anything that will distract us and numb us rather than just sitting with ourselves. We do talk about sex, love and dating, but we also talk about disordered eating. Please be aware that parts of this conversation might be very difficult to listen to if you have or you're recovering from an eating disorder, but I sincerely hope that it is nourishing, uplifting and useful. We do both talk about significant weight loss in our own lives, so if that's not something that's helpful for you to hear at the moment, you might want to give this one a miss. So I have written a novel about someone who is seeking validation through sex and intimacy. I do think that I spent my 20s making very silly mistakes and um, having sex with lots of the wrong people because I thought they'd give me external validation. Is that something that you broadly, without going to too much revealing details, see in the people that you're working with and are there things we can do to to recognize that and start to slow it down a bit no, i think a lot of the time in my experience as well you know not just with the people who i work with especially with women i hear a lot about people's motivators to want to change being around validation from other people a lot of the time with female clients it is around men and the sorts of opinions and feedback on themselves that they've grown to give a lot of weight to um and more and more, I notice that but we do look outwardly to, to try and understand. And, and sometimes that, that balance is a bit difficult because on the one hand, you don't want to close yourself off to any feedback at all. 
Um, and at the same time, it's hard to become discerning and create sort of criteria for the sort of feedback that you do take on about yourself and who you do allow to help you decide where you stand on things and how you feel about yourself. So yeah, it's a discussion that comes up a lot, a lot, not least when we're talking about social media and things like that. I feel as though I have definitely sought external validation in a way that felt a little bit out of control. And, you know, I think now I'm in my 30s, it's, it's better, but it still comes and goes. But also definitely in a romantic sense, that's what we see in every single movie and all these old love stories and old literature. I think we do get fed that narrative, you know, you're, you're no one until someone sees you. Absolutely. And I think that we can make the mistake of forgetting getting that people are projecting their own stuff onto us in the way that they do choose to see us as well. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's confirmed constantly. I've been single for a very long time and it's quite interesting the sort of how excited people are about things like I might be seeing someone as opposed to maybe I've done something that I feel a little bit more proud of than that. <laughs> oh, I think that's really interesting that it's not so there's like there are two layers of it there, aren't there really? It's sort of in our romantic lives it's nice to have attention from a person to have their romantic attention but to also that sense that you're validated when you're in a relationship and that I think people want you to be happy but happy in a way that they can understand yeah absolutely and there are markers for how well you've done in these different if in these different ways you know and some of them can be quite shallow um, and of course people are happy for you it's just it's just interesting to see when you when you speak to a spread of people how much um how much validation is 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 given when it comes to the sorts of relationship you've the sort of relationship you've managed to attract or the sort of person who you've managed to get to like you <laughs> you know like it's a quest or a competition and this idea that it's very very hard i was listening to on the by the book podcast they were analyzing men are from mars women are from venus which i've never actually read seminal 90s classic self-help have you Read when I was really young yeah I read it when I was really young it was a big deal wasn't it and this idea that it's almost like love can be science it's a complicated math problem but it's really really very simple and it's simple because you just don't bother the men too much you know as a woman you can only love men and be loved by men and all you have to do is pretend <laughs> not to need anything ever and they will come <laughs> and it's so weird and interesting and I think that it's my tendency to kind of you know shake a fist at the patriarchy and say how very dare they and that's so reductive it's so heteronormative but it's really interesting to maybe look a little bit more closely about where that came from and how that got under our skin and it's like the you know in Gone Girl the cool girl and you know that's kind of men are from Mars women are from Venus yeah I think pretending not to care about stuff seems to be what we were told is the cool thing to do to be unfazed and cool about everything and kind of internalize it if it's too much if you're too much I found that um certainly there are certain emotions that I try to I just quickly find myself thinking oh no don't 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 be angry or don't be difficult or don't be contrary or don't annoy that person um and when I've really investigated that and unpacked it a bit if you will for a self-help word um it tends to come back to qualities that I think will make me less attractive essentially in one way or another and I think those are picked those in my case were certainly picked up pretty early on 
Like people don't want to go out with someone who's difficult. People don't want to go out with someone who's a pain in the ass. I do think it's funny how we use words like difficult and demanding to describe someone who is pursuing their own happiness and their own mental health and creating any kind of friction for the other people in their lives. And selfish is one that comes up a lot too, especially because, you know, so much of my work is wrapped up in self-care and people identifying what their values are and trying to turn a little bit of the compassion that they have for other people onto themselves. I can't tell you how much I'm, I'm met with this idea, but I would be selfish. Um, that would make me selfish. If I put myself first, then I would be selfish. And I think investigating even this word selfish is interesting um, to put yourself first. Interestingly enough, when I speak to people about what they want for their loved ones, it's always the response is, I wish they would put themselves first. I wish they would be more selfish and take up more space. Um, and so I think a lot of these ideas are at, at odds with each other in lots of ways right now. Definitely. And I do think it's so tricky, isn't it? Because you do, I'm such a big fan of your work around eating, being in our bodies. And I think, you know, we've both had our own, God, I'm going to say journeys, and it's going to sound like extractor, <laughs> but journeys in our own lives around that. And, you know, around kind of, you know, I've been a, a binge eater and I've eaten in a, in a disordered way. And I brought that to the book, but about, I suppose I was thinking how much of food is such a complicated way that we express love and think we're showing ourselves love. And I think that quite often I have reached for food as an appetite suppressant. I have been so scared of all of the different things that I've wanted that I've binged to, to numb that want. I've been scared of what might happen if I let myself pursue what I really wanted. So I yeah. just, it was, you know, a quick, easy way and also food can be an addiction that you can it's something that you can abuse really quietly without interrupting anyone or anything it's kind of the the least selfish thing yeah i mean and and yet as we both both know it can be as serious for people as drugs that we that we take a lot more seriously including illicit ones i speak to a lot of people um, who are in recovery from other substances who will tell you that getting around this, their addiction to sugar, for example, is the most complex one. Of course, there's the, partly the aspect of the fact that one can't cut out food entirely and be sober. So you need to have a different relationship yeah. with it. And I think you're absolutely right in that the line between genuine comfort and abuse can be very different for all of us and different on different days. And it's such a process of understanding what your relationship with food is like. I think also what you were saying earlier about being full. I've been having some really interesting conversations with people recently, which I admittedly hadn't thought about when I wrote the first book, um, which I can really relate to, or the second book rather, which I really relate to, which is this idea of feeling quite grounded. And you know, you said earlier, whether you want to call it self-sabotage or debilitating oneself in one way, even if it's temporary. My whole work is looking at the value of our behaviors as opposed, and, and, and how they serve us and looking at um, what may be a problematic habit as a solution to something. And interestingly enough, I had talked about weight, physical weight being layers around our body that, you know, is protecting us unconsciously or otherwise. And then I talked, I understood that how it would serve one to feel, to get that hit and the diminishing returns of thinking, oh, if, if one piece of chocolate feels great and three pieces of chocolate feel great, then 10 must be amazing. You know, um, whereas being full specifically, binge eating to the point of physical discomfort. Interestingly enough, I've had discussions recently about how grounding it is. 
And I had a client tell me recently, even if I wanted to do something, I can't now because I've, um, I've debilitated myself temporarily. My hands are, you know, I can't, you know, almost takes away a sense of responsibility. And you know, Daisy, I'm completely related to that. I didn't even know I would, but I completely related to it as a person who's always on and doing stuff and worried that I'm not doing enough. It was like, I've tied my own hands for a bit. I really love that. And I'd never thought of that. And I know, and I noticed that sometimes, you know, now when I do overreach that, yeah, there's a sort of, and I think especially, you know, this weird, weird, weird old year, more than a year, this difficult thing we're living through. We are thinking all the time and we are so, so exhausted. And, you know, I think we both know as well that practice of, you know, self-love and self-care and the phrase self-help is a bit of a cringy one, but it is that, you know, you are doing it yourself and having to think about it all the time it's easy for us to acknowledge sometimes we need to go off the rails sometimes we need to break from the endless thinking and it is that you know being almost like you're sheltering yourself in place yeah, and i think a lot of the time too people ask themselves why do i engage in this habit if it doesn't even make me feel good so food's an interesting one with that right so why would mm. i do this if how it serves us doesn't yeah. make me feel good and my answer to that is always you know it makes you feel different and i think now more yeah. than ever this year more than ever I don't know about you, but I have rarely wanted so much to feel different. I, I want to feel differently. I, I, whether it's boredom, I want to remedy. Um, even if that boredom turns into, I don't know, righteous anger or <laughs> whatever it is, I want to feel different. And we know that, for example, eating, having sex, whatever else it is. Going on social media, that's a quick way to make boredom into righteousness. Exactly. Um, or just to feel different. And I think people are often lost because they think, mm. why would I do this thing? I don't even feel better as a result of it. And it's an acknowledgement of the fact that you want to change how you feel. And the first, that's, that's the first priority right now. My instinct is, I think that I feel as though I'm so far from really understanding what these things are, that it's really important to kind of to just make space and allow them and something that I really love in um, both of your books I think you know possibly more in the kindness method is this idea that when we do something we don't like be it sleeping with unsuitable people who do not treat us well or regularly eating until we feel you know dizzy and sick and ill or staying up all night you know looking at Twitter and Instagram and feeling dreadful on many levels or whatever it might be or other you know more illicit substances recognizing that all of those things have a function and that in the past i really felt that oh it's terrible i do this thing i must stop doing this thing and i was focused on the fact that oh i must stop because it's bad but you can't do anything until you understand you're getting something from or i'm getting something from it and what is that and is there anything I can do that's a, a way to get that for myself in a way that sort of serves me better and is a bit more compassionate and nourishing? And exactly. Yeah. Looking at the cons of your behaviors is aside from the fact that it just, it just doesn't, it doesn't help you gain insight into your needs. If you look at how this um, behavior or substance has served you in the past, or perhaps continues to serve you now, what you could potentially find is that you have a list of to find coping strategies and you have needs you're acknowledging that you have needs that 
need filling or you initially did and now they've become all remedying the need even if the need isn't there has has become an automatic habit um and i think also there's a thing this element of compassion compassion for oneself in and of itself is is a great thing but when it comes to actually wanting to change these behaviors i really feel that shame and guilt and self-criticism is not only unhelpful um, and doesn't give us any insight it's counterintuitive if a lot of these things that we're doing are to comfort ourselves what we don't need mm. is comfort from the internal abuse that we give ourselves for having done them in the first place and then if we look at it from a behavioral change perspective what we're doing is enabling a spiral and enabling catastrophizing when it comes to our next choices and our behavior so if for example i'm beating myself up about having eaten too much i'm full of stress cortisol's through the roof how do i regulate usually i eat too much <laughs> you know and then that cycle just just continues and the blame and the shame and guilt that comes with doing something that you know isn't good for you um doesn't help i don't think helps one to change it not at all it just kind of pushes you further down that that path of having feelings that you don't know how to manage and you want to escape from i think with a lot of this stuff it's about spanning out and zooming out a little bit because i think when we isolate individual behaviors we can justify them and we should be able to justify them a lot of the time you know you've got autonomy you can do whatever the hell you like good for you i think there's something very powerful about realizing that we can impose friction between a trigger and a response and i believe that there's a real value in that and it's very empowering i know that i have you know i'm talking as someone who has abused food and is keeping an eye on that but when i've thought about say just eating more than a tasty portion of chocolate like as much as i can get my hands on or as much as is in the house just absolutely noticing that sort of breathless breathless panic and that bit and almost like oh if I can get it down me before I have a chance to think about what I want, it won't count. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And I think what you have there is lack of trust in your own body to regulate itself. Lack of trust in your own capacity to sit in the discomfort of what's going on for you. And you're invalidating your experience, I think, a lot of the time by nipping it in the bud that way. And a lot, it's, I think we do ourselves a disservice because it's so rarely as scary as we think to sit in that discomfort. And then it's so extraordinary to notice that these urges, these cravings, they pass. Yeah. And we can still follow through with the behavior. It's just to impose a pause, just for fun, give it half an hour. That's it. Don't reply to the text straight away. Have a bit of, you know, sleep on it before you get your credit card out. Exactly. Or just little, little questions like, what am I going to be glad I did tomorrow? Would I be doing this if I wasn't in a bad mood? Will I want, will I want nothing more than to eat onion rings and burgers if I first, I'm not absolutely starving when I go into the, <laughs> when I go into the supermarket, you know? Just a bit of curious, compassionate inquiry. And I think we're often scared to do it because we're so scared of what we're going to find out about ourselves. But I assure you, I mean, if it's any consolation or it helps anyone of all the people who listen to you, I'm the one that people tell their secrets to and I have yet to be shocked. <laughs> so you're not the exception. You're not the worst. I have a feeling that curious, compassionate inquiry is something that I keep screenshotting from your Instagram because I'm like, yes, that's absolutely it. And I think that with that urge, 
it's yeah it's rarely the urge it's that like no shut it down the sort of the whack-a-mole panic of like mustn't feel it mustn't feel it mustn't let it get in and it's allowing where that's the superpower it'll find its way out it'll find you somewhere in in us it found its way in binge eating and restricting and it just so happened that for our bodies and the way that we abused ourselves that way it resulted in unwanted weight gain and that by resolving that and eating and actually enjoying and loving food the natural byproduct was weight loss there will be people who because of the, their bodies and the ways that they made up and the things they were binging on will have had the opposite byproduct but the fact is we're all trying to do something very similar which is not to sit with ourselves for long enough to notice how much we truly dislike what we're going to hear and who we are I was really surprised to discover, I think, reading your book and other books about addiction, especially, mm-hmm. that the nature of something like alcohol is, you know, how can we not all have a slightly problematic relationship with it? That is basically how it's marketed to us. Mm-hmm. And we're not really told to approach that with any kind of thought. And then when we struggle with it, it's a real, oh, you've got this, you know, terrible terrible problem when you know how could we not because i don't i don't personally abuse alcohol really i think having had the, the experience i've had with food i can say with confidence that you know, that's this not my thing but i love drinking and if i enjoyed drinking every night and i wasn't remedying anything any deep-seated sadness or it had nothing to do with the way that i was eating my tolerance would build if we're going to normalize this drug and consume it and love it and enjoy it for the rest of our lives, some point, you know, not everyone's going to get to a sort of obvious rock bottom point. Not everyone's going to get to a point where sobriety or abstinence is the only way. And I think it's quite, it's a shame that it's so scary to talk about when it's actually so normalized. And I wish that there was more of a middle ground. And that's what I'm trying to do is say, look, um, I've had to internalize certain guidelines that help me stay well when it comes to food. I don't see why we can't do the same for booze. What type of alcohol we drink, what, why we're drinking, under what circumstances, with, with who. You know, mm. These are all things that guidelines we can put in place ourselves to consume in an empowered way. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. 
so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. I really wanted to talk to you about body image. And I think that's something that we all struggle with one way or another and the impact that has upon our sex lives and things that we can do to improve that or just you know to understand it and be a bit kinder with ourselves yeah I think this has been quite a tough one for me because you know you put on a lot of weight and you're worrying about your body all day and then losing and gaining weight and loads of people making comments about your body and then you vent- I eventually lost all this weight and I finally feel great about it and I'm covered in stretch marks and you know there's always something I found that again trying to understand why there was such a gap between the way I was perceiving myself and the way I perceive others. Not even those I love, just any old person. Um, And the way I was scrutinizing every aspect of my body and assuming that people were judging me based entirely on how I looked all the time and withholding pleasure from myself, everything from sexually to also not, you know, not wanting to wear bright colors because who am I when I look like this to draw attention to myself. And I found more and more when I catch myself, or luckily it isn't like that anymore, but when I was catching myself doing that and being really unfair, I do sort of remember thinking that I would just never speak to someone else this way. You know, like never in a million years would I judge someone to the same extent. Don't get me wrong, we all have judgments. And a lot of them are based on how people look. I mean, that's just fair. But nowhere near the level of judgment that I was giving myself. And I certainly didn't think that anyone was unworthy of enjoying their lives as a result of how they look. And yet that seemed to be, my behavior seemed to suggest that that's how I felt about it. Oh, Sheru, it breaks my heart, but I feel it. I get it. I completely get it. You know, we have to push ourselves out of our own nests. I think there's um, you talking to your therapist about all of the things you will do when you have the body that you think you'll have the body that will make you worthy of living your life and your therapist saying well what if you never lose weight what are you going to do then and i loved as well that you put your first reaction was just be really really angry with her to not think you know hmm, she's got a point i should live my life but it's like screw you yeah i was absolutely like i'm gonna get her struck off (laughs) you're still my therapist i love her um, no, she was basically, yeah, she was like, what if, what if you never lose weight? And that had been my sort of true north my whole life. So I was like, what do you mean? If I never lose weight, then you're taking away my holiday. You're taking away my outfits. You're taking away my boyfriends. You're taking away my escapades. You're taking away the adventure. That's all waiting for me. So how dare you take it away? And then I, I came away and yeah, I was really quite um, angry, doesn't really cover it. I remember pacing around in London Bridge <laughs> thinking, what am I going to do with this woman? And then I sat down and I started looking at other people and kind of thinking, I wonder if they don't do stuff because of how I perceive them or how they look outwardly. I wonder if they, you know, would I wish that upon them? Would I tell someone else, wait until you've done this thing before you're nice to yourself? Because so many of these things I realized had absolutely nothing to do with my weight. At some point, I just decided that someone who looked like me didn't 
get to do things that look that look like this without being laughed at or without being ridiculed or without thinking that it could be better if I looked differently, different, look different. And I, I started doing some of the things that I associated with rewarding myself for having achieved a goal, specifically of weight loss. And it turns out when I started doing those things for myself, I started giving my body signals that I am worthy of enjoying my life, regardless of what I'm putting or not putting in my mouth or whether I'm, you know, sweating or not, um, which is ultimately all this came down to. And regardless of what I look like. You were able to build a life you didn't want to escape from and kind of reverse engineer it. Um, I often think of um, David Bowie. I think he talked about carrying around sort of Baudelaire and things because he thought, oh, you know, chicks dig literature. I'll get myself a girlfriend. He'll think I'm an intellectual. And then being moved to read the books out of boredom and having them in his pocket. But, oh, it's quite good, Baudelaire. Everyone is a bit of a fraud and a charlatan and winging it. And all you need to do is to find enough love for yourself and enough belief in your humanity to just try and see. And I think you talk so beautifully about curiosity as well and just treating everything as a big experiment and being like, well, what's the worst that will happen if I do that? Which is almost the opposite, I think, of the grounding, moving forward and not staying still. Not, I mean, I completely understand why anyone would want to, to be grounded and stay still, especially now. I think it's trusting ourselves without guidelines and without someone to lead us and just knowing that if we have enough of a conversation with ourselves and our bodies, and we treat ourselves with the compassion that say we would use to try to work out why a child was behaving in a way that wasn't good for it, for example, it can help enormously. It really, really can. And I think more and more having that curiosity and remembering that we are the way we are for a reason. We develop the habits that we've developed for a reason. And I always wondered that because I speak to people who are extraordinary and very developed in lots of ways. And when it comes to their emotional development, there's various reasons why they haven't learned to really listen in on the way they talk to themselves or gain awareness of why they behave in the ways that they do. And so I would never want to deter anyone from having that curiosity. I think it's really important. And I did want to ask more explicitly about sex because I think with especially for women when we talk about desire and how we are allowed to to want things and to want to explore that there's just so much in the way we get told that we need to look a certain way the way that the male gaze is just so 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 entrenched and in order to really feel desire we have got to free up so much headspace and you know honestly when i think about how exhausting it has been at any point to be a woman and i think it's more exhausting and less exhausting than it's ever been like how come how does anyone ever get laid how do we <laughs> how can we feel sexy and good about ourselves and confident enough to explore that when we've got so many voices that again it's back to selfishness it's back to body image it's back to you know escape it because i think that to do it in a way that feels really good you have to release yourself from that quest for validation i think so too and i think it's about investigating where it came from and a lot of the time too invest like not not necessarily in terms of is it is it the media are we talking about the patriarchy a lot in my case it's more like who what were those formative experiences that told you that you couldn't relax who were those people? What were those conversations you had? A, a, a kind of a timeline. What was it that happened that made you see your body or the world or sex differently? And what are those core beliefs that you picked up 
about what it means to be sexy or what it means to be attractive. I remember at one point growing up, you know, you had all these mess things about you would read things in magazines or hear things in, in, in school, like boys like this, or you should look like this, or you should do that. And then I realized, and then you would hear, oh, it doesn't matter actually, just so long as you're confident. And I was like, <laughs> what? Now I'm supposed to be confident about all the stuff you've told me you don't like? <laughs> you know, so it was like, oh, now I have to own it. Okay, because you've told me for a lifetime that I, that I shouldn't. I didn't feel, it kind of felt the same with the weight loss thing, you know? It's like, can we just take a minute to unlearn some stuff, please? Because we've internalized so much of this stuff and we need to go back and understand where it came from first before we go straight for it being bad. I find that incredibly, incredibly frustrating because I'm like, I do, I truly want to love my body. I really, but I can't just switch. No. <laughs> you can't say, oh, you're, you're a bad feminist for living in the world and absorbing all these Western messages. Yeah, and I think it's a lot more nuanced than that too. Like you and I are examples of people who it isn't just about being slimmer. It's about the fact that you and I were not people who loved food so much, correct me if I'm wrong, but loved it so much that we couldn't get enough of it, you know, and the byproduct happened to be gained weight. When you know that in moments where your body is changing in a way that you're not happy with, it's a direct result of you neglecting and abusing yourself. That's a different story. And I sometimes wish people stuck around to listen to that a bit more. And you're right in that it's ambitious. You know, I can't tell you how many clients I have who will say to me, look, I've got this really disordered relationship with food, but I'm totally on board with, you know, how messed up that was and Jane Fonda, you know, uh, mentality from my mother. And I would never want my daughter to, to carry on those patterns. And so I need to remedy this. But um, they can't be honest about it because there was never a time to have that honest conversation. It went from you're bad, you're bad, you're bad. You should be on a diet. You're too big. Your body's not right to immediately. You should accept yourself exactly the way you are. And if you don't, then it reflects really badly on you as a woman. There has got to be an in-between conversation about that. There's got to be an unlearning. I'm on board for it, but I really don't believe in driving these conversations underground because you think you're going to get shamed. We've had enough shame. And you know what? Daisy, it took me a long time to be able to articulate that in a way that didn't terrify me. And that in itself is absurd when all of us know the pressure that we've been under to look a certain way for so long. To flip the script and turn on a dime like that, I think it was really ambitious. And I don't want people to start lying about how they actually feel outwardly and giving their loved ones advice that they know they're not taking personally. I'm really, really glad you said it and that you expressed it so beautifully because it is so terrifying, isn't it? And I want to say I made so many changes and the greatest change has been entirely, you know, mental, not physical, you know, like you. I have been on many diets. I've gained weight, I've lost weight, I've gained weight, I've lost weight. I've never really been, and always with that kind of, oh no, but body positivity, I love my curves, it's fine. Well, just not even hating my body, but feeling so lost within it. And there's a period where I look at photos of myself and it's not, I don't think, oh, I hate my body there. I think, I, I don't, I don't see me. I can't, it's like, like looking at me when I was in a cult or something. I'm kind of blinking and trying to get out. All of the dimensions of my body look sort of off. We all have our own definition of this. You know, I, for example, now I fluctuate between, I guess, a size 12 and a 14. I've been a size eight. I've been a size 22. Both of those were pictures of extreme malnourishment, those extremes. 
I am not getting anywhere near as much external validation right now as I did when I was a size eight at all. I'm not getting as much attention. I mean, I was literally, everyone thought it was brilliant. Didn't matter that my hair was falling out. Um, didn't matter that I was probably healthier at a 22 than an eight. You know, all of these conversations is just ones that we weren't having. I wasn't allowed to have. I didn't know how to have. And you're right in that when I look at photographs of myself too, it's so much, I can see, it's, it's almost like I see through how I look immediately. And I, and I remember, oh gosh, I was crying that whole time. Or I was really lashing out. Or I was really trying to control things. And it was always, the weight was always just a symptom. And for other people, it will look different. It's just that the yeah. way that it manifested itself in our lives was physical and easy to judge. To be honest, I've never really in terms of my, but like I weighed myself um, at the beginning of this experiment and I discovered I was, um, I was obese. I was significantly heavier than I believed myself to be. But that whole belief about what I should weigh and what that might mean, it was really, it was based on a sort of weird, like arbitrary, in the way that I still, I had a, for three years of my life, I was frightened of money and I didn't look at my bank balance ever or anything and I just hid all the envelopes and I couldn't deal with it and now I make myself look every day and part of that is trying to think this is just a number this is just me making sure that there's no like surprise million dollar direct debits I've forgotten about or anything or you know, as a freelancer to make sure people are paying me this all this number indicates it's a general general number of where I'm at and what action I need to take or not and I think you know the number on the scales is the same because something that I really sort of believed is like because when I was um anorexic in my teens and you know weighing myself and obsessed and I had this and, and that's the other weird thing that even though when I looked desperately unwell and I was desperately unwell that number never went below a certain point and I was like well I can't quite I had this a goal number and it was entirely arbitrary and based on an idea I had of what that would look like and what that would feel like and it meant nothing for my body or for me but I avoided weighing myself and my obsessive avoidance was I think as unhealthy for me as my obsessive looking yeah I mean this is this is the thing with a lot of the stuff you know I, I speak to people I go on podcasts and do interviews and things and I think a lot of the time when we're talking about humans especially uh, when it comes to this sort of stuff we want we want a clean answer some people will say to me, do I weigh myself? Do I not weigh myself? Is it a good thing? Because actually when I don't, I get, I, I can't really gauge what's going on. It actually helps me connect with my body and associate different weights with different ways that I'm treating myself. Other people will say it's a recipe for disaster. Some people will say, um, you're damned if you do and you're damned if you don't, because if you are trying to healthily lose weight that you want to lose, you know, there's caveats. But if you do, it's possible that if you've gained a bit, you think, well, screw it, and all that catastrophizing and diet culture rubbish comes comes back in, where you think, oh, I'm I'm weak, I have to start again on Monday. And if you've lost a few pounds, you might you might think to yourself, well, obviously this is working. I, you know, I've got space to binge or whatever your relationship might might be with it. And these are these are just examples. There's so many other ones. So I think all of this kind of comes back down to deciding what works for you, and then if you've got it in you, working out how to communicate that. <laughs> Um, and I say, if you've got it in you, cause it's taken me years and hundreds of conversations and I've written a book about it. So I don't think we owe anyone that, but it has been quite freeing to be able to articulate why I do the things I do the way that I do them and why it's in my best interest. I wish I didn't have to defend it. 
I wish none of us had to defend what we do, but sometimes it isn't defense as much as it is people um, concerned about us who want to understand why we're going about things the way we are. And so when it comes to the weighing, that's that's a big one. That's the other complicated part of it, I think, that people want to know why we're doing what we're doing. And often we don't know. I think the reason that your brilliant books you know, need to exist is we all have this idea of what we should be doing and that we sort of know the mechanics of you know how to live a, a sane and happy life and then we don't do that and that should is such a great 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 source of shame we're not encouraged to understand ourselves holistically or individually you know you're running against one group of people who feel very strongly you should you should look a certain way and weigh a certain way and you know they'll talk about health and again they'll make judgments about health that they wouldn't make if your body was different when those judgments would be as valid or as invalid and then you'll run to the other side in search of comfort and they'll be like well why can't you just accept yourself and like, well because I went over there and they told me to go here and you're not accepting me either and yeah. let's stand in the middle and be like we've got you for the yeah and you know what even scarier I might change how I feel about this in six months you know that's possible too I may come across a bit more information change how I feel about this and about myself so it's just staying open to it and realizing that I think it's just so much more about trusting ourselves. So much of this comes back to trusting ourselves. Mm -hmm. I used to meticulously plan everything so that there were as few variables as possible. And you can't preempt everything. It's all good and well planning. But to learn to truly trust ourselves, our instincts, our needs, and to make spontaneous decisions that are in our best interests, um, I think is a lot more empowering. And again, I think people are scared of it because it sounds so intense and self-helpy, but actually I think we should be taught it at school. Like how are we being led by the stuff that our 14 year old our science teacher told us when we're 14 and now we're finding us having ourselves at 40, having conversations with our partners that are, you know, are influenced by that just, just cause we didn't have an opportunity to literally fact check um, based on where, where we're at now. So I appreciate that. I just think there was a gap. I think there was a gap to hand over some tools and say, you know what, every now and then you might want to ask yourself a few questions so that you don't end up behaving in ways you don't, you're not happy with and don't understand why, because it's not your fault. I'm not sure about this analogy, but I was thinking that like with a car, I don't think most vehicles will drive straight. I think that it, they will veer if you don't touch them and you do need to do some subtle course correcting. Ooh, I love that. No, no, no. With a light touch, you're absolutely right. And I think that that's, uh, I love that. Cause I think that there are a lot of habits, whether it's a check-in or a specific habit in itself that, and it can be very personal that we can engage in to anchor ourselves back and remind us, you know, that there's things to keep an eye. All of us have sort of things to keep an eye on here and there, you know, mm. mine are anxiety, food and codependency. Um, 100%. I know those things. Powerful trio. <laughs> Quite the trifecta. Yeah. And they, there's interplays, of course, but I know that those are the currents that I'm swimming against. But the more I know that, the easier it's become. You know, first of all, because my understanding of myself and my relationship to those, those uh, characteristics or influences or, or behaviours has made me feel empowered and less out of control and weak. But knowing that actually and noticing those triggers and noticing that stimulus is actually a fantastic way to impose that bit of space between wanting to do something and actually doing it so if I'm having codependent urges or feelings and I a few times in a row don't allow them to turn into behaviors 
and I see that I come out unscathed and my body regulates, then I'm gathering evidence. You know, I'm gathering evidence of the, of the fact that it's going to be okay and that this can be my way of handling this. And the more evidence I gather, of course, the, the easier it is to put that trigger in its place when it comes up again and go, oh yeah, this is what happens. Then I'm going to want to do that. And then I'm not going to do that. And okay, cut to the end. And before you know it, cutting to the end becomes the new automatic response. And that's it. It's just, you know, repeating that going, oh, hold on. I know this one. And I think you're so right that more often than not, it's not doing anything. Um, there's a bit, I think it's in um, Ada Calhoun's book, um, Wedding Toast I'll Never Give, where she's talking about her tendency to do really like terrible, terrible panicked sort of DIY repair jobs, like if a, you know, a chair falls down and she'll just make everything worse by, you know, rushing in with like duct tape and scissors. And the family, family motto is don't just do something, stand there. Yes. I think we could all do with a bit of that. Yes, I love that. I, I actually didn't know where that was from and I had posted that myself before. Just do nothing. You know, it's so interesting, doing nothing, for me has been a revelation absolute revelation that that that, that's an option for me there have been a few things that I found really extraordinary like a that I can talk myself in or out of something if I've Mm. decided at 4 p.m that I'm going to do something at 6 p.m say I don't know I'm I'm not going to go do that exercise I said I was going to do that's it I'm not doing it I can decide at 4 30 that I'm back in you know that was amazing to me because I yeah I find little things as well that are like Oh, the Saturday, I was lying on the sofa and it was so cold and I really didn't go for a run. I was like, well, that's it. If I've not gone in the morning, I'm not going to go. And then that other voice, and I don't know where it came from, that said, yeah, but this isn't about, you know, any sort of like New Year regime. Sleep. You like sleep. That's going to go a lot better for you if you get out. Do 10 minutes. If it's horrible, you can come straight home. And I think quite often that's all I'm doing, it's my self-parenting is like, well, try it. And if you still don't like it, you don't have to do any more. Exactly. And, you know, you, we say self, self-parenting and that's, and that's a lovely way of putting it. But I'm sure that if you were speaking to a friend, that's the advice you would give them. You know, you'd also tell them gently, like, obviously do whatever you like. No, no one's making you do anything. But there's nothing to say that because you said you were going to do something that you, that's it now, you've declared it. Um, and and that, was, that was the other thing, another revelation, was realising that there's an option to do nothing. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate Cherie's candour. And I think in some ways, the conversation around food, bodies and appetite has never been more complex. I'm so appreciative of the work she's doing in order to make us all healthier and happier. If you want more, I can't recommend The Kindness Method, Cherie's book, hard enough. It is genuinely life-changing, and once you've read it, you will want to buy extra copies for everyone you care about. Thank you so much for listening to Daisy is Insatiable. The podcast is produced by Dale Shaw for New Alaska and hosted by Acast, with special thanks to Sphere. My novel, Insatiable, a love story for greedy girls, is published by Sphere and out now. It's available in hardback from all online retailers, as well as Amazon, where you can find the ebook and the audiobook read by Charlie Clive. I leave you with this from Gail Green. Great food is like great sex. The more you have, the more you want. Join me next time for more Source, Sex and Secrets on Daisy is Insatiable.
Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. Invesco QQQ is proud to sponsor this episode and even prouder to provide access to innovation for the last 25 years. Basketball has had innovations over the years, too. We're seeing the game played in new ways every day. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. 